So we're in Exodus chapter 24. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of, the, out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. This is the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. The most wonderful words that anyone could possibly ever hear, I think, are found in Matthew chapter 25. When the master says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. I long to hear those words. Or when he says in the same chapter, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. These are sweet and blessed words. But in the same chapter, from the same lips of the Lord Jesus Christ come the most terrible words that anyone could possibly ever hear. When he says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Not enter in, come, but depart. Come, go away from the presence of my goodness and grace and receive only my wrath. 
You see, these are the best words or the worst words that anyone could ever hear because nearness to God is everything. There is no one greater. There is, there is no glory that this world has that does not in some way point to an infinitely greater glory than the glory of God. There is no joy you can experience. There is no happiness or contentment or peace or any part of life that you have that is good that does not reflect in the smallest sense something of the infinite grandeur of God. Nearness to God is everything because God is supreme. In His presence is fullness of joy. So to be in His presence, to be near Him is everything. My prayer for you this morning is that you would understand what it means to be near God and to draw near to Him. Because often it's a vague idea. My prayer is that you would, that you would draw near to God, that you would pursue that, to pursue to be in His presence. And that if you enjoy any of that, if you have it, that you would truly rejoice in it and take advantage of it. But do we deserve that? Do we deserve any better than Adam and Eve who were sent out of God's presence out of the garden after their sin? Do we deserve any better than Cain, their son, who killed his brother Abel in covetousness and who was sent away from the presence of the Lord and he said it was unbearable punishment for him? Do we deserve any better than the people of Israel or Judah when God in His anger, after they rebelled again and again and again and again, He sent them away from His presence into exile into Syria and Babylon? Do we really think we deserve any better than those to whom Jesus says in Matthew 7, at the end of the age, they will come to Him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these wonderful things in Your name? And He will say, I never knew You. Depart from Me. In fact, why would we think that even if we were able to draw near to God, that we would be accepted by Him. That we would, in an instant, be consumed and destroyed by His holy, awesome glory. Exodus 24, our passage for today, is really a bookend to the section, this third section in the book of Exodus. It's the bookend to the other part of chapter 19. This is a kind of a section here, where God is meeting with His people on Mount Sinai. And God comes to them in Exodus 19, and He's on top of the mountain, in the, and there's, this, there's peals of thunder, there's flashing of lightning, there's the ground rumbling, and there's fire, and there's smoke, and there's clouds, and they are terrified because He says, don't come up the mountain, in fact, don't even touch it, lest they break out against you and destroy you. Because God is holy, and they are not. We find after the Ten Commandments are given by God in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off. They didn't say, well, that looks awesome and cool. Let's go up to it. They realized that... We should not come close. They backed away. They stood afar off. Verse 21, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Moses alone drew near. 
That's what we find in our passage for today. We start off in Exodus 24, verses 1 and 2. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord. It's an invitation to come up to him. You and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, that's Aaron, Moses' brother, and Nadab and Abihu, his sons, who would be the priests, and 70 of the elders of Israel who represent the people. He says, come up. But then he says, worship from afar. Don't come near. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord. But the others, that is the representative of these elders and the priests, they shall come not near up to the Lord on the mountain, but not near to him. And the people of Israel, they shall not come up with him. They shall not come up at all, stay at the foot of the mountain. Why? Why were they not allowed to come up? Verse 17, Exodus 24, 17. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Based on who we are, based on how we think, based upon how we speak, based upon how we value things, based upon how we have lived our lives, what assurance would we have that if we drew near to God, we would not be devoured by His holiness? Context of this chapter is important. One of the challenges of preaching through a book of the Bible that has 40 chapters in it and when we're on the 24th chapter, is that we lose our place. Where, where are we at? What's happening here? This is all the more true because we started preaching through the book of Exodus almost a year ago. So let me give you a little bit of context. When that, in that first sermon almost a year ago, I, I said that we can break the book of Exodus up in half, in two parts. The first half is really emphasizing the faithfulness of God as the covenant God to His people. And the second half, is God calling His covenant people to be faithful to Him. The first half, His faithfulness. The second half, the faithfulness of His people being called. We can take each of these halves and break them up into two parts each. The first half about the faithfulness of God, we could say this is where the Lord is revealing Himself as the covenant God who saves His people and the covenant God who sustains His people. This is His faithfulness. He'll be faithful to save and sustain His people like he did from Egypt, and he did in the wilderness. And in the second half, where we find ourselves in chapter 19 and beyond, the third section in 19 through 24, we see God, the Lord, revealing himself as the covenant God who speaks to his people. He's giving them the words of his covenant and the laws, the commands of his covenant. But in chapter 24... It's not just the end of this third section where the Lord is revealing Himself as the God who speaks to His people, but it's also a connector to the next section. It's a transition into the final section of the book of Exodus, the final stage of the covenant, where the Lord reveals Himself as the covenant God who not only saves and sustains His people and who speaks to His people words of law and covenant, but He's also the God who settles among His people, the God who draws near to His people. We will see in chapters 25 and following that he's giving instructions for the tabernacle. This is the tent that they were going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. And God would dwell in the tent in the holy and most holy place. And he would be near them in their camp. God who settles among his people. We see this most clearly in chapter 24 here, verses 12 through 18. <clears throat> Exodus 24, starting at verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain. This is after the, 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 the elders had already come up and gone back down. Now this is just Moses. Come up to me on the mountain and wait there. 
that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. This is the Ten Commandments that God wrote on these tablets of stone. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua. He knew he was going to be there for a while, so he had stuff to take with him. And Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. Behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. This is the word, it's settled on Mount Sinai. It's actually the the verb form of the word tabernacle. He tabernacled with Moses on the mountain. He's settling among Moses, his man, his servant. The Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud where God is. And he went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. What's he doing up there for 40 days and 40 nights? <clears throat> well, he's receiving these the stone tablets on where they have the Ten Commandments, but I doubt that took very long. What we see in chapters 25 and following, he's also giving Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, for how God would settle among his people, how he would draw near to his people, and they could be with him and worship him. <clears throat> this is that transition into that final stage of the covenant. Covenants are how God relates to people. <clears throat> I told you um, in chapter 19, when we got to that section, this third section, about God, how He speaks to His people. He speaks to them words of covenant. I told you that a, a covenant is a sacred oath of faithfulness. It's this solemn vow and pledge, a promise that you will be faithful to your part of the covenant. Here, this covenant is that of God and His people Israel. The covenant is this sacred oath of faithfulness that establishes the relationship, it defines the terms of the relationship, and it secures the relationship between at least two persons here, God and Israel. And all of God's divine covenants involve conditions imposed where he comes to them and says, guess what? I'm entering into a covenant with you and this is how you will respond to me. Here are the commands. You have the rules you have to obey. There are conditions because he says, if you will obey these commands, there will be certain consequences. So there's not only conditions imposed, but there's consequences ensured. And consequences can either be good or bad. It just means the result of something. If you obey, the consequences will be good. If you do not, well, then they will be bad. Conditions imposed and consequences ensured are part of God's covenant. And here in Exodus 24, we see that this Mosaic covenant, so-called because it was given through Moses to the people. Sometimes it's called the Sinaitic covenant because it was given on Mount Sinai. But we know it most often as the Old Covenant. Because today, because of Jesus, we have a new covenant. A new covenant in Christ by grace. And it's better than the old, but it was a response to the old. So we need to understand this part too. This old covenant here is being confirmed. It's being inaugurated. It's being ratified and sealed right here. It was spoken of, but here is the official confirmation ceremony of the covenant. What's the point of a covenant? Why is he even giving them the covenant? What's the goal? The gracious goal of the covenants of God is that sinful people would be brought near to the holy God. That's why he gives covenants. 
Because he's a holy God and he says, you can't come near to me without some provisions, without some boundaries and rules. You, you need this covenant so that you can be brought near. The primary function, the, the main objective, the central role of God's covenants are that sinners like us can be near God. That's what he's after. Nearness is at the heart of covenants. It's about covenant closeness. Think of a marriage covenant. What's happening on that day at the wedding? <clears throat> a man and a woman are being united. They're being made one flesh, brought together unlike any other time they've had before. There's a closeness here. I remember the first wedding I officiated. It was a little over, little over 14 years ago. And it was special to me because it was my brother's wedding. And <clears throat> because I remember thinking about, you know, I've been to weddings, I've been a part of weddings, I've seen them, and, and yet, officiating one, I started to think about all the symbolism in a wedding. I and mean, there's a ton. You, you have these, and it's everything is just over the top, right? You have these gold jewelry, and you have diamonds, and you have beautiful decorations, and flowers, and dresses, and tuxedos, beautiful music, and, and fancy words that you're saying. All of it is just set up here. <clears throat> the symbols of the wedding are indeed great. But, but I mentioned that in that first wedding that it sometimes seems that the symbols of the, of the wedding, there's a gap, a disparity between that and the reality of marriage. I, got, I don't know about you, but most people in their marriages, I don't think, always, every day, dress to the nines and have, you know, wind blowing their hair and music playing as they walk down the hall to do laundry. It just seems mundane. <clears throat> and so it seems like the symbols... And the reality. But that's only partially true. See, the symbols of the wedding are indeed great. And there is a gap between the symbol and the reality. That, but that's because the symbols are here and the reality is way up here. Marriage is more grand, more beautiful, more special than the symbols could ever possibly say. We just don't always see it or feel it. And I say that to you today in part because when we, we see here in Exodus 24, this is the covenant confirmation ceremony. And there is symbolism throughout this whole chapter. And we might be tempted to think, oh, how great are those symbols. But the reality is greater still. So let's look at this covenant confirmation ceremony. It has two main parts to it. First is the renewal of the conditions imposed. The re renewal of the covenant conditions imposed, and then there is the reassurance of the covenant consequences ensured. So the renewal and the reassurance, the two parts. The first of these is found in verses 3 through 8, where we see that this first part is focused on the covenant renewal by the people. The people themselves, the people of Israel, are renewing their covenant commitment to Yahweh. This covenant renewal by the people involves requires, indeed, four ceremonial, four symbolic rituals. First, there's the covenant commands, <clears throat> the covenant conditions rehearsed. We see in verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Then later he's going to write them down, verse 4. He wrote down all the words. <clears throat> and then he's going to, verse 7, going to read them again. This is part of the, the ceremonial ritual, the symbolic rituals of this covenant confirmation ceremony. And, but the second part of this is the, the second of these four symbols in this renewal part of the ceremony. 
is that the covenant conditions are rehearsed and then the covenant commitment needs to be given. And it's like these, the, the conditions are being received. Not only recognized, but received. And so we see in verse 3, after he gives them all the rules, it says, And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Or verse 7, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. You see, this is a covenant, a sacred oath of faithfulness is given here. This is a renewal of their covenant commitment to the conditions imposed. God, you give us your rules, we will obey them. You call us to be faithful, we will be faithful. It's a renewal here. And I say renewal because in chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, they say almost the exact same thing. They hear that God says, you will be my people and obey my rules. And they say, all that you say, we will do. So it's a renewal of this. But what's being renewed here is not just their faithfulness, but also their faith. They're renewing both their faithfulness to Yahweh, but also their faith in Yahweh. Look at verses 4 through 6. Exodus 24, starting at verse 4, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. The altar representing the presence of God, the twelve pillars representing the twelve tribes, that is the people of Israel, that they were having God in the center, in their midst, and they were wanting to draw near to God. Verse 5, And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. God, if we're going to draw near to you, we're going to offer sacrifices to you and come before you with burnt offerings to atone for our sin, to cover our sin, and a peace offering that celebrates the peace, the fellowship that we have with you. Verse 6, And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basin, the blood of the oxen, these sacrifices, and he put it in basins, these bowls, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Why would he throw the blood against the altar? Well, he'll tell us later in Leviticus 6, uh, 17, 6 and 11, And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That's the peace offering fat of the animal. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you, on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it, is in the, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This is the blood of the sacrifice that will be a substitute. It's life for yours. God's glory is a devouring fire, he says in verse 17. In order for you to draw near, you must have your sins atoned for, covered. A life for a life. It's death as a substitute in your place. And so the third part of this renewal aspect this, this, of the ceremony is the covenant blood, the sacrificial substitute. And then they have to have covenant faith. This is the fourth part. Covenant faith in that covenant blood. It's as if they were being covered by the blood themselves. You see in verse 8, And Moses took the blood, uh, the other half it is, and he threw it on the people. And he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Saying that th this covenant relationship where, where sinners can be brought near to the holy God, they need to be covered by the blood of a sacrificial substitute in their place because they deserve to die, 
but it will die in their place. And they will be covered by the blood so that they can be accepted, so they can be brought near. Drawing near to God requires the blood of the covenant and faith in God and His grace to receive them based upon God's substitute and God's mediator, Moses, who's throwing the blood on them. Drawing near to God, the holy God, is impossible unless something is done about the sinfulness of those who would draw near. A sin has to be dealt with. And so they must have faith in God's grace to accept the blood of the substitute poured out on them, sprinkled on them by the mediator, that that is indeed sufficient to cover them so that they can draw near and not be utterly destroyed. Now this is especially true that they needed to have this faith in this blood just like they need to have a commitment to the conditions. They have to have faith in the blood and in the mediator because their faithfulness was not so perfect. Oh, they promised it as such, didn't they? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that He has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. But they weren't. And God knew this. Deep down, they knew it. But neither are we. Our obedience is imperfect. And so we too, every week we come here to renew our faithfulness to God. Indeed, every day we need to get on our knees, maybe multiple times throughout the day, God, this is part of my repentance. I'm renewing my faithfulness to You. You are my Lord. But we, in the same breath, we have to renew our faith that we will be accepted by the blood of the substitute and the work of the mediator in our place. We have to have faith, and yet another problem occurs because our faith is too often weak. It's weakened by our own sinfulness. It's weakened by the lies and temptations of this world, and it's weakened by, by just the shame that we feel because of our sin and the accusations of the devil against us. He won't accept you. Not if you've done that again. You, you haven't changed enough. He's not going to take you. He's done with you. Do you see what he did with Israel? Do you see what he did with Judah? Do you see what he did with Adam and with Cain and Eve? And all throughout the history of God, he's been sending people away. He will send you away too. We have to have faith that by the blood of the covenant and the mediator of the covenant, we will be able to come near. So we need more than just our faith. We need our faith reassured. So the first part of the covenant confirmation ceremony is the renewal by the people. The second is by the covenant reassurance by the Lord. We see here in verses 9 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, just as God had called them to, verses 1 and 2. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. In these verses, we find God reassuring his people that they indeed can draw near. That they can draw near by their, their renewed commitment of faithfulness and renewed faith in the blood of the covenant and the mediator of the covenant that he has given them. And he's reassuring them, trying to reassure and strengthen their faith that they can come near because in verse 10 it says, they saw the God 
of Israel. What does that mean? I mean, that's confusing, especially because the Bible also speaks that says that God is a spirit. It says that God is invisible. It says that no one has seen God. That's in the New Testament after this time. No one has seen God or can see God, it says. What does it mean that they can see the invisible God whom no one can see? It must mean that there is a special kind of seeing. There must be a special kind of visible manifestation, a representative appearance of some aspect that they knew that I'm not seeing God, but I'm seeing something that shows me that this is God. I'm seeing some aspect of God, not all of Him or truly Him who is invisible, but I'm seeing something that that God is showing me that, hey, I'm here with you. You're near me. So whatever it was and however they could see the invisible God, the point is clear. This seeing was a symbol of their nearness to God. They had drawn near to God and He had allowed it. But... Moses says, that's not the surprising thing. That they could somehow see the invisible God who cannot be seen. That's just something that happened. He actually says, let me make special note of something that is more amazing than that. Not just that they saw God, but that they saw God and did not die. Verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Not they beheld God and were obliterated. They beheld God and they melted before Him. They beheld God and He destroyed them. No, it's they beheld God and ate and drank with Him in His presence. This ate and drank here is not just a cavalier, casual kind of, hey, let's, I brought some sandwiches for a picnic here. This is a covenant meal. This was part of the confirmation. It maybe a close relation would be like the wedding reception, right? This is still part of the whole thing. This is part where they're celebrating that God has brought them near because you think about it, in the Middle East, especially ancient Middle East, what is the, the, what is the clearest way that you could show that there is peace between two people? That there is agreement and that there is fellowship. You have a meal together. This is what they're doing. And it's very possible that the burnt offering we see in verse 5 that was completely consumed, it's a burnt offering, it's a whole offering because they burn it to crisp. It's completely consumed as if God consumed it, as like He ate it. Not literally, of course, but He consumed it by the fire. And then the peace offering that is celebrating their closeness, their nearness with God, their fellowship with God, their peace with God, they were to burn the fat but to eat the rest. And so here they sit down with God and they eat this covenant meal with Him. They're sharing a meal together, but how is that possible? How can they, sinners, come near the holy God and be in His presence and see something of Him and have a meal of fellowship in His presence? One word, covenant. It's a covenant. He says, this is the way I've set it up. I've set up these rules to work in this way. This is how I can bring sinful people near the holy God. Through faith, their covenant renewal of their commitment of faithfulness and faith in the covenant blood and the covenant mediator. They could be brought near God. We say, okay, well, we see that there is some symbolism here of their being near God with this meal and near God and seeing Him, whatever that means. But what does it practically mean for us? What does it mean to be near God? 
Again, I think we have, we have sung songs about it. We've read about it. We've prayed prayers this way. But what does it mean to be near God? This is especially maybe difficult because God is the omnipresent one. That is, he's everywhere. David said in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your presence? Like, I, I cannot not be near God. So what do you mean, draw near to God? How can I be near him if he's everywhere? Again, there must be a special sense in which we can be near God who is omnipresent, but this is in a unique, special way. To be near God simply is not simply the feeling of his omnipresence either. Well, I just sense that he's with me. That can be a, a blessed gift, especially in times of suffering. But no, this nearness is more foundational than that because it's more constant and it's more secure. It's not based upon how we feel. It's an objective reality for those who are in the covenant. To be near God then, the goal of the covenant of God to bring sinners near the holy God, to be near him means to have assurance from God, the acceptance by God and access to God. It first means to have assurance by God. And I think it's all very clear here in Exodus 24, but let me show you even more clearly, I think, in Hebrews. Starting in Hebrews chapter 10. There's so many passages here. We're going to look at a few. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 23, and we see the assurance of God that you can indeed be near. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, that is assurance, to enter the holy places. What are the holy places? It's the holy place and the most holy place where God was said to dwell in the tabernacle and in the temple. Here it's the cloud of a devouring fire on Mount Sinai. You can enter into, you have confidence and assurance to be near God, to enter where God is at by the blood of Jesus. Not by the blood of oxen or sheep or goats. By the blood of Jesus. We can have assurance by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, the curtain of the temple that was torn. But he says, no, the curtain of his flesh that was ripped on the cross and his blood poured out. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, over the temple of God where God dwells, verse 22, let us draw near. Let us draw near to God. Let us draw near with a true heart, full of sincerity and in full assurance of faith. Renew your faith that God is reassuring you that you can indeed be near Him. Full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean by the blood of the covenant from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let's renew our covenant faith without wavering. Why? Because He who promised is faithful. He is reassuring us again and again and again. You can be near me. Assurance for what though? Assurance to be near in what way? God will accept you. Sin and warts and flaws and failures and weakness and all. He will accept you. You have assurance that He will accept you. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 11. We have the assurance from God that we have acceptance by God. It says in verse 11 here, when Christ appeared... As high priests of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Then he entered for, uh, once for all into the holy places, that is, into the holy places of heaven itself, upon his death and resurrection, 
He entered not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Because the blood of goats and calves are always pointing to his blood. And thus securing an eternal redemption for sinners like us. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, if they could draw near to God in Exodus 24 because they were sprinkled with the blood of oxen, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Moses offered a, a sacrifice outside of himself. Jesus offered himself without blemish to God. How much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 18 of Hebrews 9. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Not even the old covenant with Moses in Exodus 24 was, was ratified and confirmed without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, we read in Exodus 20 and Exodus 24 again, He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Exodus 24, 8, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. I love that. He commanded the blood for you, to cover you, so that you could be accepted by God. This is the nearness. You have assurance that you can be accepted by God. Verse 21, in the same way he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. We'll see that in 25 and following of Exodus. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Do you see, beloved, we have been purified. We have been forgiven of our sins so that we can be accepted by God, near to him and not devoured. But this acceptance by God is not only forgiveness of our sins, it's also sanctification of our obedience. You see, we could be just like the Israelites, and indeed we are, and we commit and renew our commitment, renew our faithfulness again and again and again. God, I will indeed be faithful. All that you have spoken, we will do. But our obedience is imperfect. Our faith, even in His covenant blood and covenant mediator is weak and so we need help so in first peter 1 verse 2 it says the elect they are chosen by god for obedience to jesus christ and for sprinkling with his blood that greek construction of that phrase is literally that they would be that we would be have blood sprinkled obedience that our obedience would be covered by the blood of Jesus so that when we come to Him and we sing our songs as a gifted response and our our hearts are not fully focused, our minds are distracted, our faith is struggling, and our life has been so far from perfect this week, He says, I accept it by the blood of Jesus, my Son, in your place. Your gifts, your obedience, your faith, your worship is accepted through Jesus Christ. He delights in it. He delights in our weak and imperfect worship and gifts and obedience and service because of the blood of Christ that sprinkled us. We have been accepted, all of us. All, every part of who we are, if we are in Christ, in the new covenant, we have assurance from God that we have acceptance by God. But we also have access to God. We have this full assurance from God that we have access to God. One more passage here in Hebrews 
4. Jesus, the great high priest, <clears throat> who was without sin, yet tempted in every way, we have him as our high priest. Therefore, let us then with confidence, with great assurance, he is reassuring us again and again and again, let us with great confidence draw near. Let us draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you see, beloved, if we are in Christ in the new covenant, then we can draw near to God who is not changed, by the way. He is still the holy, holy, holy God, a consuming and devouring fire. But when we come to Him in Christ, covered by the blood of the substitute and coming in the name of our mediator, we come not to a throne of judgment, but to a throne of grace. And we can have access to God in all of His mercy, in all of His grace, in all of His blessings. He says, I will give you all that you need and abundantly more. Go to Him. You have access to God. Full, complete access. My dad um, is a, uh, my stepfather is a, uh, a doctor and he has this office where there's the door you're supposed to go in and then there's another door that says, arrow, please use other door, no entrance. But every time I'm there, I go straight in that door and no one says a thing. They go, oh, hey, welcome, come on in. Why? Because that's my father's place. Do you see that your father says to you, you get to come in any time you want. I go directly and I don't sit in the waiting room and wait. I go to his office and I sit there and we can talk. You get to go straight to your father through Jesus. Have access to God anytime, all the time. Because of the blood of the covenant and the mediator of the covenant. This is covenant closeness. It's covenant nearness to God blood and the mediator of the covenant. And don't miss that part. You have access to God completely, fully, and yet it is never an unmediated access. It is never an unmediated nearness that you have with God. You know, you don't have to go through a priest or uh, through Mary or through any other saint or any other works. You don't have to have some magical ritual or things. No, you come, go to God, but you go through Jesus Christ, the mediator. Because we will always come to him as creatures. We will always come to him as those who have lived a life of sin. And he says, I will accept you. And you will have complete access when you come through Jesus, through faith in him. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, not Moses. In Hebrews 8, 6, it says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. The new covenant has better promises than the old. The new covenant has a better mediator than the old, and it's a better ministry, and so we have better access. Do you see, only Moses was near God on the mountain. Only Moses can be near to God and not be devoured. But not so anymore. All of us who come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ can be in the presence of God and have acceptance and that acceptance is that he has not just said, hey, you're one of my, my subjects, and true, or one of my servants, though true, but also you're one of my friends, indeed, you're one of my children. We have access to God as our Father. And so what do we do? What do we do? How do we respond? We draw near to God through faith in Jesus. Because no one comes to the Father except through
draw near to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, to save completely all those who draw near to God through Him. Those who draw near to God through Christ, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Oh, He died. And His blood was spilled and was sprinkled on all His people by faith. So that they could have access. But after he died, he rose again from the dead, never to die again. And now he ever lives to make intercession for the people so that we can have confidence, assurance that we have acceptance by God and access to God completely. If you are in the covenant, this new covenant, through Christ, by faith, then you are near God. You are near to God. then what does it mean for the Christian to draw near to God? If I'm already near God, I'm already close to Him in this covenant, what does it mean that I would draw near to God? It means that you would actively renew your faithfulness and renew your faith. Say, God, I'm renewing my covenant commitment, my faithfulness to you, and renewing my faith in you and in the covenant blood and covenant mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it means that you would rejoice in the nearness that you do have. And that you would take advantage of the access to God that you have. How many times for those of us who are sitting in a room with somebody, maybe it's our spouse or a sibling or a family member or a friend, and we are all just doing this. And there's, there's access, but there's no advantage. You're not drawing near to one another. He says, you're here, I'm here. Get on your knees and call out to me. Come and listen. Come and sing. Come and serve. Go and tell. Be with me. Draw near to me. You have the access. You have the acceptance. You are near me. Now rejoice in it. And take advantage of it. And you see, it would be a grave mistake. A very grave mistake indeed to be moved by this passage. To have some desire for a similar kind of experience that they had in Exodus 24. To think, well, they, they ate and drank with God Himself. They saw God. That's what I want. Shouldn't that well be what we're seeking after? No. Because you remember, that is a symbol of the nearness. We have the real thing. We don't need the symbol. As far as symbols go, they are always less than the reality. And what is the reality that we have in Christ, in this new covenant? Paul says in Ephesians 2, 13 and 18, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For through Him, through Jesus, we, ha- we both have access. Access in one spirit to the Father. We have access to God not as only as judge and king, but as our Father. That's the reality. That through the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit, we truly have access to God. And we truly have acceptance by God, peace with God. And we have God promising and reassuring us over and over and over again that He will work all things together for our good. So go to Him. Praise Him. For his symbols. They are blessed indeed. And yet we should never value the symbol over the reality. Can you imagine somebody saying, okay, 
Now, you have a choice. You can either have your wedding ring or your spouse. You say, well, how big is that diamond? No, you say this. You say, I can have the wedding ring or the spouse. And you say, okay, the, the ring is a symbol of the value of our relationship. It's a symbol of, of the bond and the unity of our marriage. It's a symbol of my spouse's commitment to me and love for me. So I would really rather have that symbol than the one who would actually love you and give you that commitment, the one that you are in unity and bound with, would be foolish. To experience some mystical and mysterious sight of God is not and should not be our goal. Should not be our desire or our prayer. Rather, we should be seeking to enjoy and to praise God for possessing the reality that all the symbolic experiences point us to. Namely, that we have nearness with God. We have the assurance from God that we have acceptance by God and access to God. And this, in part, is what our worship gatherings here are about. About reminding us of and pointing us to all that we possess in Christ. All that we have in this new covenant. We have this nearness with God. And as we come each week, we give our covenant renewal to Him. And as we do that, renewing our faithfulness to and our faith in Him, He is giving us His reassurance that because of Christ, you have nearness with me, you have access to me, you have acceptance by me. And oh, how we need it. We need it week in and week out to renew our faithfulness and faith. And we need it week in and week out indeed, multiple times a day for Him to reassure us, to strengthen our faith and to draw out our commitment and our faith in Him. This morning, if you are not yet drawing near to God through Christ, if you cannot say you have that nearness by your faithfulness to and faith in Jesus Christ, then instead of partaking of communion when others do, Bow your head and confirm that you indeed want to be a part of this covenant. It's being presented to you today. Because if you're not a part of the new covenant where there is grace, then you are still part of the old covenant where there is only condemnation. The new covenant of grace in Christ says, come to Jesus by faith and you will have assurance that you will be accepted, forgiven, and you will have access forevermore. And if you are near to God through Jesus Christ, and if you want to continue to draw near to Him more and more and more, then I invite you to take your communion cup and take out this wafer of bread that represents the body of Christ. That body that was broken, that was like His flesh was torn to give us confident access, bold access to the Father. And renew your covenant faithfulness too and your covenant faith in the Lord Jesus. In the same way, take the juice that represents the blood of Jesus that He poured out. The blood of Jesus that He sprinkled on us. Because He's both the substitute and the mediator of the new covenant. And take it with faith, enjoying the nearness that you have with God, that you are reassured by the blood of Christ, the substitute and mediator, that you have access and acceptance.
Amen. And would you please stand now and sing of the nearness that we can have with God, the boldness that we can have, the confidence we can have through faith in the Lord Jesus.